it's not just the dislocation of our forces that gets targeted, it's all, all the civilian infrastructure, uh, schools, kindergartens, hospitals, uh, cultural buildings. Russians love to destroy not just uh, Ukrainians physically, but culturally and mentally. They're trying to wipe us off from the face of the earth. Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, we are looking at an update of the Ukraine crisis with Mark, Luca and Aliona. So what I wanted to do in the episode is just really look at the current logistical aid efforts, look at the implementation, the current climate and our guests' anecdotal reflections in Ukraine at the moment. So we also wanted to dig into the cadence of change in the current climate from an infrastructural perspective, logistical efforts, and the real need on the ground from our guests' anecdotal experience. So to do this, I firstly have Mark Hannaford with me. Mark is the CEO and founder of World Extreme Medicine. So since its inception, WEM has trained over 20,000 medics in extreme medicine and has a global platform that hosts the first uh, world's first MSc in extreme medicine program at Exeter University and uh, plenty of other endeavors. Welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Nice to be here. Next, I have Aliona Hilvko with me. Aliona is a former MP in Ukraine. She is a regular contributor at Chatham House, CapEx, and is a TEDx speaker. Welcome, Aliona, to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. And finally, we have Luca Alfati with us. Luca is the head of operations for Medics for Ukraine, and he has assisted in delivering over 1.7 million pounds worth of medical aid to Ukraine, as well as several trauma courses uh, to frontline soldiers and medics. He's also a, an advanced paramedic within the UK. Welcome, Luca, to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. I thought if we could just kick off initially, Mark, with just digging into what the current climate looks like on the ground from your anecdotal experience. I think it would be great to answer this and have Aliona add into this. I think from from Luca and I's perspective, from Medics for Ukraine, there's a sense of impending change in so much as the winter has led to relatively static lines. Um, you know, there has been lots of conflict going backwards and forwards, but no massive changes. But I think as the as the spring approaches and goes then into summer where you know we are expecting something to happen um for the conflict to pick up its pace sadly for civilians to be caught up in that that change in that conflict um and for essentially the line to go one way or the other and you know it's it really in some respects is anybody's anybody's guess which way that might go of course we all here want it to go one particular way but you know there are some things not everybody can control. So there's a sense that of, of of preparation for that you know, upcoming offensive, which inevitably will happen as the sort of winter eases. Um, and there's a sense, for, I think, from our perspective, certainly from Luca and I, is that we need to be getting as much training and, and, and convoys and supply runs into Ukraine as we possibly can during this kind of interim period. Um, and just to update, I mean, when we spoke last, it was 1.7. We're getting really close now to almost two million pounds worth of trauma supplies going into Ukraine. So we're we're pretty pleased with that. But you know, there is there is no end in sight, unfortunately, to the conflict, and the need is only growing. So we're you know, we've we'll reach that milestone and and pass it quite quickly, I think. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are 
from Ukraine? I think for sure the need for medical supplies will only grow, especially over the next few months. Unfortunately, uh, the counter the counteroffensive of, of Russian forces has already started. Their their big spring offensive that everyone was expected. It is quite dragged out and prolonged. Um, it is mostly in the east. Um, there's little chance for them to start attacking from the north, from Belarus. Um, again, as they did did a year ago. Um, But, you know, the Donbass region has now been deemed as a meat grinder, which is an absolutely horrific word to use, but that's what most military experts have been using in the last few months, that despite, um, you know, the difficulty for the um, heavy artillery to go through from the Russian side and um, quite difficult circumstances for Ukrainian army to to protect themselves in those areas where it's quite open. The, the terrain is is very difficult and heavy on casualties. And you know there have been these waves of Russian forces just coming towards Ukrainians. And um, for the lack of expertise and uh, heavy effective artillery, they've just been throwing people at the front line. Um, with very little training and knowledge how to lead the war strategically. So the casualties have been immense, unfortunately, on the Ukrainian side too. Um, And sadly, I think we're bracing ourselves for another very difficult period over the next few months. So, Aliona, on the ground, what does it feel like from a sort of risk profile or indeed just some of your anecdotal experience of how the locals are feeling... um, from a, yeah, just from a risk and and the jeopardy to 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 their own health. Well, there's really no space uh, place in Ukraine right now. No matter where you are, whether you're close to the front line in the east, whether you're directly in those uh, towns that are being contested now, um, the occupied territories are of course the most dangerous place to be. And luckily, many civilians have been um, evacuated from there. But even more. Um, have been unfortunately relocated to Russia or killed off, tortured, detained, etc. I mean, we're only finding out about those instances when the territories get liberated. Um, on the front line, of course, you could see that it's not just the dislocation of our forces that gets targeted, it's all, all the civilian infrastructure, uh, schools, kindergartens, hospitals, uh, cultural buildings. Russians love to destroy not just Uh, Ukrainians physically, but culturally and mentally, they're trying to wipe us off from the face of the earth. So really no place is safe. And as we see uh, from the constant bombardment and missiles flying all over Ukraine, um, they have managed to reach basically every region. Um, So you never know where it might strike. I think every day, especially when we have some sort of victory on the international arena, like the recent visit of President Zelensky to the UK and then to the EU. Um, The next day when he came back to Ukraine, there was a gift for him of 70 missiles flying towards Ukraine. Um, The Ukrainian air defense system is getting better. So that's good news. I think more and more out of 70 missiles, for example, the latest biggest launch, um, about 60 of those were shot down and fewer and fewer hit uh, civilian targets and less people are getting hurt as a result. But still, we're seeing quite 
um, a dangerous scene throughout the Ukraine. Um, the hometown where I'm from, for example, in the west of Ukraine, where many volunteers have their bases and warehouses um, and go through uh, the city and the region on the way from Romania. Um, there's another logistical connection, connecting point in Lviv, uh, which is on the border with Poland. Um, and then some people come in through Odessa, um, flying in uh, from uh, Moldova and Romania again into the south. That's the, the closest route. Even those places are not safe because we're getting missiles um, from the Black Sea, uh, from their carriers. Um, very often you can see on the news that those missiles fly above uh, Moldovan and Romanian airspace, which is, of course, uh, NATO territory in case of Romania. Um, so no place is safe and... Um, it's better to be cautious all the time. Luca, from your anecdotal experience on the ground, I mean, you've delivered uh, several of these trauma courses, but could you speak to the real need on the ground that you see? Yeah, the, the real need on the ground is um, it's not really changed since the beginning. It's just gone, it's just grown bigger. Uh, and uh, um, as exactly as Aliona was saying, just the, 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 the civilians and military casualties are uh, exponentially increased, especially in the last few days, weeks. And this is going to go on for a few weeks more. It is, uh, um, in, in, a, in a certain sense, isolated to the Donbass region, which is huge anyway. I mean, Ukraine, Ukraine is massive, as it is a massive country. And the Donbass itself, even if it looks like a small region, is actually really big. If you draw a line from Kiev all straight across to Lusansk, basically, all that area southeast, it's, uh, it's the meat grinder, as, uh, as Aliona was saying. And Kherson, which is actually a city um, we, we are, we've been supporting heavily with our uh, medical supplies, trauma. But it's not just trauma uh, supplies that we deliver. We deliver a lot of other medical uh, equipment. It's sort of like, uh, I think it's... Uh, uh, rated as the third deadliest city in Ukraine at the moment, just because of the logistics of how it's set up. The, the army is just on the other side of the river, hence there is no uh, getting away from having uh, to basically to, to fight in the city pretty much. So uh, the, the needs are still uh, is, is uh, trauma supplies and, uh, and understanding of very first um, trauma impact medical uh, medical aid, if you like. Um, and then, again, following what Aliona was saying, hospitals have been targeted as well. So there's not really any hospitals where you can take casualties, which then creates a really difficult, long, prolonged field care transfers of the uh, casualties that actually are alive and maybe, you know, they maybe can make it. And don't forget as well, there is a, a huge mix of military and civilians uh, in uh, in these regions, and a lot of people in mimetics, in in army fatigues, they are actually non-professional uh, military. Uh, a lot of them are actually civilians who have, um, you know, embraced the cause and they are basically uh, fighting for their country. So there's a, there's a whole mixed bag of uh, uh, of injuries. From initially, actually, it was mainly blast injuries, traumatic brain injuries, that sort of stuff. But recently, uh, there has been a bit of a change, and the, and, um, the, the front lines are very close, and there is more uh, sort of like face-to-face, man-to-man, uh, you know, 
shooting range, if you like. It's not just the missiles and the missile strikes, uh, meaning that the injury pattern is uh, is not changing. There is still the same injury pa- pattern, but we are adding to it uh, with uh, bullet, you know, bullet wounds and, and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's it's a huge need. If that answers your question. So, Luca, could you maybe speak to, because as you were saying, the risk is dynamic um, at the moment. Could you maybe speak to how Medics for Ukraine manages the risk uh, in Ukraine? So it's, it's, a really, it's difficult, uh, as, you, as you would expect. Uh, and uh, again, the, the whole of Ukraine is a battleground uh, due to the missile strikes. They can just uh, hit uh, anywhere. Uh, yes, the air defense uh, is much improved. But it's still, you know, 60, 70, 80 missiles at the time. Uh, that, and, and you also got to think about you know, when they shoot them down, uh, all the debris and so on. So it's, it's difficult. Uh, we, since day one, we've been working with, the, uh, with Ukrainians, with local uh, trusted uh, brothers now, member of the, and sisters, uh, member of the, of the team uh, for just short of a year. And basically, it's about working with some uh, uh, risk management companies that help us with uh, uh, risk assessments. And then people on the ground, we got some people on the ground in Kherson, as we speak, for example, uh, and we get live updates on what the situation is. Uh, We are very, very careful about sending any Western uh, anywhere in Ukraine uh, because we got a very good network of obviously Ukrainian volunteers for delivery of, of medical supplies. We were able to get medical supplies within, within Kherson city when it was uh, occupied, for example. We re- literally just managed to get some of our um, medical aid to Bakhmut, for example, uh, just a few days back. And it's thanks to a, a, a very intricate network of local volunteers uh, that we managed to get the, the kit where we need to get it to. Uh, but it's ever-changing. We're always on the phone. We're always basically getting information on a daily basis. And, you know, we, 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 we try our best, but it's difficult. Mark, could you speak to the educational aspect of the program and how it's been going? And indeed, if there's any plans for expansion of the educational courses um, at the moment? Uh, yeah, thanks, Owen. I think I'll probably get Luca to tack on to the end of this as well because we've developed the educational program um, together. So when Luca and I originally went to um, Ukraine and decided that, you know, given our unique network and our kind of set of skills and the people that, that are associated when, with WEM, that we could do something really useful and support the other aid agencies that were deployed to the Ukraine. You know, we originally went with the under the with the idea to focus on pediatric hospitals and clinics. But we, we really very quickly, quickly realized that, that whilst there was a need there, it wasn't as overriding and as, um, as urgent as the need for one's trauma supplies to the front line. That's kind of obvious, but also training of medics going to and deploying to the front line. And I think initially we were reluctant to do you know, focus on the military, but actually, given that so much, so much of the civilian population is now military, essentially, it feels like that whilst we're training um, units and we're training um, soldiers, medics who are deploying in sort of T Triple C, so tactical combat care, 
we're actually in effect training civilians because this is not a largely professional army now. This is Lucas intimated and said, now these are volunteers who are dressed in uniform, fighting for for their country and for their land. And then, so for us, that makes that training that we're giving, it feels to us even more meaningful because these are people who could be our cousins, they could be family members, they could be our, our children, you know? And so training them to be able to deliver as effective medical care to their colleagues and comrades as they possibly can feels meaningful but also trying to keep them as safe as we you know as we possibly can in in what are horrendous combat conditions you know giving them some of the tools and in the intuition to keep themselves alive so that they can help more people feels really more meaningful and i think you know the trauma supplies are tangible but the training in a way feels even more meaningful because it's long term um and it directly saves lives it's hard to you know as 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 alien has said mentioned highlighted you know the, the spring offensive that has already started it hasn't started with a dramatic um frontal assault which i kind of think you know maybe that's what we were led by the media to expect but it's it's certainly started by a massive increase of pressure on the front line whether that's going to allow us to expand our training or whether the need for what we're doing is going to stay focused, we would love to have the capacity and have the ability to be also able to train civilian um, response units and disaster response units. And we are starting to do more of that, but certainly that would be an area that we would really like to expand in, to do our training to big civilian groups as well, so that, you know, when the missiles do get through and there are impacts on the ground that we've trained the people responding there to to do their job better as well or given i mean that's the wrong way of putting that i think you know giving them the benefit of some of our experience because they're doing an amazing job anyway um so we're limited a little bit by resource and what we can do and also luke and i have been really really um we constantly remind ourselves because it's so easy to let this mission kind of expand and by expand become diluted and less focused we've been really really focused on what we're doing so that what we do we do really well we do in a really targeted way and actually as we do it we improve based on the feedback that we're getting from the people that we're teaching so we'd love to expand but whether the situation is going to allow us to depending on the level of conflict that kind of remains to be seen but certainly there's potential and we've got a you know we've got a whole host of people volunteers medical volunteers medical professionals here who would love to be involved now luke i don't know whether you want to to add anything to that no it's uh, it's pretty much exactly what you said and uh, uh, i i really i really want to emphasize that uh, point about militaries being civilians because that is exactly what it is um i remember one i'll just give you this quick anecdote and mark you were there as well uh we trained uh i think about 50 or 60 a team of 50 or 60 uh soldiers uh in the uh, region uh, of uh i think it was bucha region somewhere around bucha and uh, that even though they looked like soldiers none of them had been deployed and none of them actually had had their military training yet so it's it's a it's it's the whole of ukraine are the civilians the population of ukraine that is actually fighting against 
you know, the invasive pretty much. It's not just a professional action. I've got the feeling the professional army, it's, it's shrinking and, uh, and, and obviously the population is getting more and more drawn into this. Uh, and I, I feel very proud of what we're doing because the majority of the teams we have trained and it's about four, more over 400 people now. Um, the, the vast majority were not professional soldiers or professional medics. Um, and even when we had doctors or paramedics or uh, medical professionals, they loved the fact that basically seeing us there meant so there is people out there that, 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 that is helping us, that want us to, to succeed. And at the same time, we're just giving more reassurance, I think, that what they were doing is what they know it's right. Um, there is a, a hunger for this training. There's a, a big hunger to have us there. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a population. Uh, is the civilians uh, there as well as our target? Aliona, could you maybe speak to your current role at the moment on the ground, um, just raising the profile and awareness of the current climate, and indeed um, just n networking and uh, fostering sort of aid into the country? Could you could you maybe sort of expand on that? Yes, I think um, every Ukrainian these days, no matter where we are in the world, and me being based in London, we all try to contribute in whatever capacity we have and wherever we could be most useful. Um, obviously, it's one of the roles uh, that I'm taking on is a uh, spreading awareness as much as I can and, you know, demystifying Ukraine and um, getting rid of that propaganda narrative that was installed um, by Russians for many, many years in Europe about Ukraine. First of all, if you remember even, that's such a distant uh, reality now. But when the war started, people were still asking me questions where there, whether there are Nazis in Ukraine and what the Ukrainians were about. And maybe Donbass is just fully Russian and Crimea never meant to be as part of a Ukraine. So just um, opening Ukraine up to the world and, and letting people know that we're just... Um, human beings living in the center of Europe who really just want to, um, you know, choose our European path, being part of a civilized world and rules-based order. Um, and so that's probably been the most difficult mission, I would say, because very often you need to be uh, well-placed and put together and well-articulated when uh, very often you also just get affected by, by all the events back home and you just want to break down and cry all the things. Um, apart from that, of course, the volunteer effort in London community has been immense. I think for the first three months um, of the war, at the very least, um, you know, there were many formations of Ukrainians here on the ground. Uh, with uh, Through Ukrainian Social Club, we were there until probably like 2, 3 a.m. every night, um, kind of getting all the aids that Londoners and generally the the whole of UK society, I think, was sending to London, bringing over to this hub and sending off to Ukraine via trucks. Um, I think it was great meeting uh, Luca and Mark as well with their effort with medical supplies. And I've tried to also put them in touch with Ukrainian policymakers and healthcare committee and in the parliament of Ukraine and the international aid committee. And I think um, their contribution and training of the medics on the ground was highly regarded and much appreciated because it was really a, such a concerted volunteer effort where Ukraine was appreciating any help that was coming in because 
even though in some aspects Ukraine was prepared for the war, in other aspects it completely wasn't. And I think that initial help uh, that came through was very important. And um, that was the, the professional side of it. But I can definitely relate to what Mark was saying and, and, and on the back of what Luca was saying about helping the civilians effectively, because one of those civilians told turned soldiers is my brother, actually, who had zero military experience and just volunteered to go fight for his country when the time came, uh, because he is of a conscription um, age. Um, and he is now actually being sent in in few weeks um, time, maybe even sooner. He is going straight to Bakhmut. Um, so it, it's it's a critical time for us. Again, he he was a part of liberation of Izum and Liman near Kharkiv, so he's seen most of those horrific things firsthand. And it was almost surreal and bizarre when I was trying to send him. Um, packages as much as I can because he didn't have combat shoes. He didn't have any thermals when he got conscripted, all the basics really, because everyone just got conscripted and the state couldn't really figure out the logistics quickly enough. So of course, all the relatives and volunteers kicked in. And I remember while I was sending him the bulletproof vest, um, I managed to source really, I think I found the last supply on Amazon and with the producer of wound healing um, salocks, which I'm sure Mark and Luca know very well of. And I remember finding myself getting very basic um, instruction from the producers of, of salox tapes and, and the, the powder, the little granules that, you know, there's a difference between covering an open wound and uh, dealing with uh, the bullet wounds. And, I mean, I had to really get a crash course on that myself to be ordered to send at least some supply to my brother, you know, hysterically hoping for him to survive in whatever comes his way and explaining that to him on the phone once he's received it, really as as explicitly as I could, what the difference is, how you use it, because effectively, if you don't use it the right way, I mean, Luca and Mark will know better than, than me, uh, it might cause into a greater damage and effectively loss of life. Um, so just giving that, you know, initial information, civilian to th- to civilian, just for my brother to know how to use that firsthand if anything, God forbids, happens. It was a surreal experience for me, and that really made me realize that those trainings and those trips that they do um, to Ukraine, they, I'm sure, saved so many lives and were extremely useful. Listen, that's powerful, and it just really illustrates the need and the importance of this training, actually, um, on the ground. And um, that's a powerful example, actually, Aliona. So as an adjoining question to, to, to Aliona's last answer, Mark and to Luca, maybe Mark first, could you speak to, to maybe the sort of diversity of um, kit which is sort of being sent out to Ukraine and indeed... Um, What's what, what kind of kit you, you, you might need going forward um, for for uh, distribution to the communities? I think um, well, I'm going to answer this in two bits, but I'm going to get Luca to answer most of it because the responsibility for kit primarily falls to Luca. But what I would say that in, in the last year since we've been doing this, and we set ourselves an original target of raising £100,000 worth of kit, and we thought that was going to be a challenge and you know we'd be pleased and proud of ourselves if we got to that and you know as we near two million pounds 
it's due to the generosity of people that have supported us and the disparate nature of those supporters from you know from people working as paramedics for for trusts for for coast guards volunteers and rescue workers who have stretchers and kits sitting in their cupboards that you know has been sitting there for a couple of years to you know every person walking in the streets um and i started we we started medics free camping we started fundraising in my village in devon which is a pretty small village on the coast of devon do you know it was them that gave me the original confidence that we were going to make a be able to do this because within a, a week or so we had already raised almost ten thousand pounds just from our local village just so people's support has been absolutely incredible and that's reflected on reflected in the type of kit and equipment and supplies that have come into us but in terms of and as i mentioned we've tried to stay really close and really targeted because that allows that allows us to keep our operation quite nimble and quite agile but also simplifies it for for luca and i so that we can do the best job possible and it's yeah luca's been doing an amazing you know simply phenomenal job in gathering that kit and the supplies together so you know i'd rather if you don't mind hand that sort of core question over to luca sure why not uh so i'm actually going to read it and i'm i'm going to read you a list is this um probably not everyone is going to understand it but uh i'm like you know what we're going to, to do this podcast tonight. I'm going to get a live update straight from uh, the front line of what it's needed medically. And this has arrived about five minutes ago because we are in continuous um, communication with our partners and, and, and the people in the units that we supply uh, in the front line. Uh, Israeli bandages, chest seals, MPAs, decompression needles, um, uh, burns dressings, and of course, what Aliona was mentioning is hemostatic agents are uh, always, since day one, have been huge, always first on the list. And as you all know, if you are in the trade, they are expensive and they're really uh, difficult to, to supply in, in big quantities unless you have the, you know, the right fundings. Uh, tourniquets are always high in the... Um, uh, it's always first on a, on a, on a wish list. Uh, and obviously, um, actually, obviously, so the sort of throw is the sort of like trench, if you like, frontline, uh, primary care that we don't think about, painkillers, anti-flus, um, anti-fungi creams, um, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. And or in, um, individual first aid kits itself. So IFEX. Uh, as pouches with first aid in it where uh, they can have it on themselves. Other bigger uh, requests, again, they've always been very uh, big numbers since day one. Ambulances or vehicles, they don't even have to be ambulances, just vehicles, they just get battered, shot at, missiles. Um, and there was a huge drive of ambulances uh, probably about six or seven months ago. I wouldn't be surprised if they're all battered and destroyed by now. Um, so if vehicles is huge. Oxygen cylinders is another, uh, lately, uh, another big request uh, due to the long, prolonged field care hours sometimes from point of injury to, I would say, I call it definitive care, but it's not really definitive care. So... Um, and there is more. There is a lot more. But that is specifically what uh, I just got requested tonight. And that happens every day or every week. And we tend to 
uh, our fundings, uh, as limited as they are, we try to keep them for um, uh, trauma boxes. Okay, and the idea of the trauma box is to have a, a small field clinic just behind the front line where you can stabilize a few patients before they get uh, put in an ambulance or in a vehicle or in a truck and first aid kits, individual first aid kits. But then we've actually been delivering everything and anything that's been donated to us from uh, recently last week, we actually sent out two um, ophthalmic lamps, for example, because obviously th there is still a whole civilian population that is not necessarily involved in war and they still get sick and they still need um, primary care. Uh, we're sending um, equipment for a small clinic just in the next convoy that's been donated to us from a clinic in London. Uh, we've been sending loads of like uh, uh, hydrocortisone to uh, a hospital in Kiev. Uh, so a anything that that is medical, we've been able to basically place in the right place, not necessarily frontline. Ourselves, with the small fundings that we're getting, we're focusing on trauma supplies, but we've been delivering any, absolutely anything and everything. So, Alionia, I'll come to you for the next question, but just briefly before I do, Mark, if someone's listening to this and wants to contribute, and maybe hasn't got access to medical supplies how could they maybe contribute e either monetary or time efforts or intention where where could they go thanks Alan. i mean the essentially the operational cost of medics 3k gets co uh, gets covered by myself and world extreme medicine so you know we could do with some support there some t financial support that was directed towards operational support because that would allow us to expand our, our capacities and also allow us to continue doing the training and the and the convoys you know there are lots of hospitals and hospital trusts, doctors clinics paramedic trusts where they've got material that's starting to come out of date you know, we would love to have access to those types of supplies so we can follow our tra trauma convoys and take them to Ukraine because they'd be used so quickly that actually being slightly out of date would really wouldn't be an issue. Um, we have a fundraising page on um, GoFundMe for medics for Ukraine. People can donate individually there. But if it's um, if and we we have a number of supporters that do support us long term. Um, would be best to reach out to us directly via World Extreme Medicine. And listen, we'll put the links in the show notes to uh, to those pages you mentioned there so people can access them nice and quickly. As we're starting to come into land on the conversation, um, Alione, I just wondered if you could speak to the amazing resolve from the Ukrainian people, both on the ground, um, from what you see in London, and just this real groundswell of true character which is coming through from the Ukrainian people. I think it's been very reassuring to see that the world finally gets to see what Ukrainians are about, what we're like. Um, that resolve has obviously not been news to us. Um, and I personally have grown and um, matured in Ukraine through two revolutions um, in Ukraine that were aimed at uh, fighting for democracy and getting away from authoritarian tendencies and post-Soviet traditions of politics and state functioning to democracy and it was it always came from people um the first one in 2004 was peaceful uh the next one in 2014 
um, actually had first bloodshed. And now as we're approaching the one year anniversary of the full scale war against Ukraine, we're also approaching the anniversary of the beginning of this war in 2014 and the first casualties um, at the revolution of dignity on Maidan in, in Ukraine, which actually prompted Putin to start war in Ukraine because he saw that we were clearly getting out of his grip and and moving towards Europe finally. Um, So I saw that resolve probably firsthand, um, seeing people on Maidan uh, protesting and standing up for their own freedom, uh, freedom of choice of their future for their children, obviously, and sacrificing their lives. Um, and it was quite traumatic. And then when the war started, just seeing most of those people from Maidan going straight to the war to protect um, Donbass, having lost Crimea already very quickly, I think that resolve only grew. And Ukrainians saw that, you know, with years, and I think that's something that the Western world needs to realize, that Russia will never um, let us be and leave us at peace. And, and no really temporary truce will ever resolve this. Um, because their only goal is to exterminate us. And I suppose in in a terrible way, but also um, in a good way for Ukrainians, for our social cohesion and resolve, uh, facing that genocidal war on us, um, corroborated through centuries, uh, really. Um, We have finally come together as a nation um, very strongly. And I think that's definitely something that has been key to us lasting this long, surviving and eventually winning this war. Listen, that's a great place to to finish. All I will just ask is, if, is there any final thoughts, indeed, Mark or, or Luca, that you, uh, you'd you like listeners to uh, to hear? I guess it's an appeal for support. You know, Luca and I, as I mentioned, we started off with relatively small goals. You know, our vision has expanded but also our connection to Ukraine and the people of Ukraine and people like Alena has strengthened over time with our volunteers that are you know, taking massive risks to get our supplies to the front line. And also our UK volunteers who want to drive stuff to, to Poland for transshipment into Ukraine, but also the trainers that go deep into the country to provide training. Do you know our connection is strengthened and deepened and you know we, we're here to the end really which hopefully will be soon but we have to be pragmatic it probably won't be as soon as we hope you know in terms of you know our support for the ukrainian people luca i think you said it all uh, yeah <laughs> no support it's unusual luca yeah you you yes he's uh he's so much better than me speaking um, <laughs> but yes uh support and it's not support for us it's support for ukraine um obviously and uh Yes, we all would like it to finish soon, but we, we are being realistic here. We, we actually have two teams going out training in the next uh, uh, less than four weeks' time. We got another convoy uh, that literally just came back yesterday and another one going in two or three weeks' time. Um, and uh, so any support, uh, being monetary, being uh, voluntary, being kit, we'll, we'll take it uh, because it's needed. Listen, thank you so much to all three of you for, for the past uh, half an hour. It's been really powerful just hearing your, your first-hand experience and a really powerful message as well. So thank you for your time and insights. We'll put in the show notes links to everything uh, you mentioned regarding Medics for Ukraine and where people can give. But thank you once again for your time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Alina. Thanks for listening to the episode. 
please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical, and performance medicine. Thanks again.